the book of Isaiah, we return this Lord's Day after a brief hiatus last week for Easter. And I invite you to turn your attention with me to chapter 7, where we'll pick up where we left off last time at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7. As you're turning, may I remind you that uh, King Ahaz of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, is in something of a conundrum, not totally of his own mind's making. He is king of the house of David, as the scripture calls it, the lineage of David with whom God has covenanted, had covenanted years and years before. Now Ahaz faces a difficult situation. Remember that the superpower of that day was the Assyrian Empire, a powerful empire and hungry to gobble up the nations all around it. That empire is, 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 is also able to back its greed with power to destroy man and beast. Now that threat of Assyria looms over these little nations along the Mediterranean uh, sea coast, particularly Syria and Israel and Judah. If you have your map from a couple of weeks ago that was in the bulletin, you can see how they're they're laid out there and stand in relationship to one another and then Assyria to the north. In their feeble attempt to stand against Assyria, Israel and Syria have joined forces in an alliance against the encroaching enemy and they expect Ahaz of Judah to do the same thing, to lead Judah into that alliance with them against Assyria. Well, Ahaz, the king of Assyria, he has eyes. He can see the futility of such an alliance, and he wishes not to invite Assyria's ire against himself and Judah by entering into alliance with Syria and Israel. And this, of course, outrages the kings of Syria and Israel, who therefore seek to invade Judah and to depose Ahaz and to put a puppet king in his place. What is Ahaz to do? Well, I mentioned that Ahaz has eyes, and he does, but his sight is limited and terribly so. He can't see any further or any higher than the nations around him. Ahaz has physical sight, but he has not spiritual sight. He has no faith. In fact, he is a deeply wicked king, even leading Judah to commit the sin, the terrible sin of burning children as offerings. Anyway, Ahaz, in his short-sightedness, looks to men and not to God. And even when God comes to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, as we'll read in just a moment, he refuses to hear or heed the voice of God, but that not without devastating effect. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, some important history, too, recorded by thy Spirit and very purposefully and very carefully so, for our instruction, our rebuke, our encouragement, our training in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do so now, we pray. Holy Spirit, come and illumine our hearts 
with this inspired word we pray that we may live according to its truths too and we ask it in Jesus name amen Isaiah 7 beginning at verse 10 and again the Lord spoke to Ahaz ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven but Ahaz said I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. For the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim of course, we know that's another name for Israel, what became the northern kingdom, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they will give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth thousands of shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. When I was a child and someone wanted on the playground to taunt another child, they would issue threats. And you remember the threats too. They'd go something like this. If you don't let me see your homework, I'll beat the tar out of you. Or, or uh, give me the ball or I'll take it and it won't be pretty. And we know the taunt that we use to turn that taunt around. We'd say, oh ho, oh ho, is that a threat or is that a promise? The assumption, of course, was that a threat is less threatening than a promise and, and that a promise would be kept. Well, God, in a different sense, issues here both a threat and a promise. 
Only in God's case, the threat is fully threatening because God is not in the habit of issuing idle threats. And the promise is fully trustworthy because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen, and he keeps every one. But before we get to the threat and the promise, consider the background here. Isaiah is is standing here with Ahaz at the upper pool and has just told fearful, trembling Ahaz to trust in the Lord and not in men. He must be firm in the faith, Isaiah says, or he won't be firm at all. This is already, isn't it, an amazingly gracious thing that God has sent the prophet to this total scoundrel of a king, one who has rebelled against God, and that in horrific ways. The mere visit by God's prophet to him has been a gigantic act of mercy to Ahaz, but God goes on to offer, no, not just to offer, to command Ahaz to ask him for a sign. And not just any old sign, a remarkable sign. As high as the heavens, as low as Sheol. Now the point of the sign was not to create faith in Ahaz. Faith is not created, according to the scriptural record. Faith is not created by signs. Signs confirm faith. Signs demonstrate the reality of what is believed. But signs don't create belief. So God is telling Ahaz, in effect, believe me, and in your belief, even as an act of faith, name a sign, whatever you want. But Ahaz is intractable in his unbelief. His heart remains hard. Now he clothes it in pious language. Didn't it sound so pious? He, he says, he will not ask God for a sign because, verse 12, I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, in another context, that would have been exactly the right thing and a very holy thing to say. God did tell his people not to put him to the test. But this is not putting God to the test when God commands that you ask him for a sign. Ironically, by this rebellious answer, this refusal to ask for a sign, Ahaz is testing God. He's testing God's patience. His audacious refusal, Isaiah says in verse 13, is wearying to God. Ominously, Isaiah says, it is wearying to my God. Just a verse before, in verse 12, Isaiah spoke to Ahaz in terms of the Lord as his God, that is, Ahaz's God, but now the point of no return has been reached. Ahaz's rebellion is full, so Isaiah speaks to him like Moses spoke to Pharaoh of my God. Well, Ahaz may refuse a sign, but he will have one nonetheless. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, gallons of ink have been spilled on and over this 
passage in debate over the exact reference of this sign. First, that word that we translate virgin can be translated as a girl of marriageable age. So even though Matthew rightly finds the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus Christ, who was indeed born of a virgin, there's no reason to think that there is not also an earlier fulfillment of this promise during Ahaz's lifetime. It's also entirely possible that Ahaz was speaking of a woman who was at that time a virgin and would soon marry and bear a son and name him Emmanuel. Well, at any rate, Isaiah includes the article the before the virgin, the virgin, he says, from which we may infer that Isaiah and Ahaz both knew full well which virgin he has in mind. And whoever that woman was, her identity eludes us to this day. We're not given her identity in Isaiah, uh, which is a tantalizing thing to many a biblical scholar. Who was that virgin? Who was the child named Emmanuel? And who was his father? We just don't know. Not in the short term anyway. We, we do know, of course, who ultimately fulfills this promise, this uh, prophecy, of course, that is Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we also know from this chapter is that this child will be a living sign for Ahaz and for the people. And by this child's years of growth to the years of Sometimes we call it the years of discretion, the point at which he's able to discern good from evil. They will mark the events that God has declared would take place in Judah. And here we come to the threat and the promise. First, consider the promise. This would actually be good news, even to Ahaz that day. God says by that time, by the time the child has grown to eat solid food, verse 15, curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, these kings over here in Syria and, and Israel, who seem like a, such a terrible threat to Ahaz, will be no more. They'll disappear. They'll be gone. In fact, even before he comes to that point, verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread be deserted. So much for the northern threat. And it would indeed come to pass, as those of you who know your biblical history also remember, Syria met its demise in 732 B.C. and Israel 10 years later in 722. That's the wonderful promise. And it was most meaningful, of course, to the remnant, to the remnant with Isaiah, those who were left in the kingdom who actually believed the promises of God. Remember that for the, the duration of this entire encounter between Ahaz and Isaiah, or we might say more properly, between God and, and Ahaz, they're standing there another. You remember him? Remember who's standing there with them? 
Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, whose name means a remnant shall return or a remnant shall repent. The boy standing there for this whole conversation represents those who, like Isaiah, but unlike Ahaz, still believe, still trust in the Lord and turn in faith to Him, still look to the promises of God for their fulfillment. To them, this boy, the boy that is, that is told about in the, in the sign, Emmanuel, is the sign of this good, of these promises, this deliverance God has for those who believe. But there is also, along with that promise, a terrible threat. It follows in the very next verse. Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Yes, the immediate threat to the north, Israel and Syria, would disappear. They would be abandoned. But the relief would not last long. Much worse, more terrible enemies would come, and they were coming from both directions, according to the text, from the north and from the north and from the south. Verse 18, and that day the Lord will whistle for the fly down there at the end of the streams to the south. Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and they will settle there on the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and the thorn bushes and on the pastures. In other words, Egypt and Assyria would both inhabit the land of Judah and descend on her like flies, like bees, called by God Himself. They will bring shame, as symbolized in verse 20, and that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. So now the king of Assyria is himself. Of course, the razor will shave the head and shave the feet and, and sweep away the beard too. Of course, there's a picture of, of being humiliated and, and shamed. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe the desolation, the Though even in the midst of the desolation, you heard that, the, that God in their case is still gracious. There are still a few animals to give some milk. There's still some wild honey to eat. So in God's case, it's not a, a matter of a threat or a promise. It is both. One is terrible as the other is wonderful. But this text is not merely, of course, about the socio-political scene of the ancient Near East in the 8th century B.C. It's also about God's people much later, in the first century A.D. And in fact, it's about God's people in the 21st century A.D. Matthew makes that perfectly clear when he takes this message in Isaiah 7 and then applies it directly to Jesus, who is born of a virgin, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. He has come this Emmanuel, and he has grown up in Israel. Israel who was in his day as it was in Ahaz's day, by and large an unbelieving, rebellious 
people. And he brought to them both promise and threat. And he brings to us both promise and threat still today. First, consider the promise that Emmanuel brings to us. The fact that he came, that God the Son came and was born of a virgin is a great promise to us. Emmanuel, that is Jesus Christ's appearance as a babe in the world, born of the Virgin Mary, who grew up before her, like Emmanuel of Isaiah's day, from infancy to childhood, from milk to curds and honey, from into the discernment of, of good and evil that comes with years of being taught and learning the commandments of God. And then into manhood, and into his ministry, and even to his death, into the grave, and then rising again triumphantly from the grave, I say this Emmanuel brings the fulfillment of the great promise to us still today. We, like, like Ahaz, we have real enemies. We do. And not primarily physical kings and physical nations, but principalities and powers of, of darkness who conspire to undo us, to defeat us, to enslave us. Brothers and sisters, you are in a spiritual war. There is a spiritual battle afoot today, and the booty of war is your soul. But the fact that Emmanuel has come is for us the sign that all who persevere in faith, like the remnant in Isaiah's day, will see the downfall of your enemies. You will see Satan cast into hell with his minions. You will witness, you will see the destruction of all those who conspired against you. And in the meanwhile, it's not merely a name for us, but a reality. Emmanuel, God is with you now, always. In fact, he's in us, he says in the Bible, by his Holy Spirit. He's our protector, he's our preserver, and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. Matthew Matthew was exactly right to see the ultimate fulfillment of this sign seven centuries later in Jesus Christ. What was death to Ahaz is life to us who believe. But Emmanuel is not only promise with those who believe, to us who believe, he is also second and he remains a threat terrible threat to those who do not and will not believe. It is true. It is absolutely true, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him and that whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That is gloriously true. But it is just as true and Terribly so that, as Jesus goes on to say, whoever does not believe is 
condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The situation remains the same today for so many folk who refuse as they did in Ahaz's day. God came to Ahaz and Ahaz refused to receive him. Refused even a sign. And this, Jesus continues in John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not receive the light, does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This is true for Ahaz then as it is for unbelievers today. And I think it must be the height of irony that unbelievers are still today rejecting the sign. They still reject the sign was given in shadow form in 2,700 years ago, and they still reject its fulfillment 2,000 years ago. You need to only do a cursory search on your internet uh, search um, thing, <laughs> uh, engine, to find site after site of people and parties who simply refuse to believe in the virgin birth. But you needn't go that far. Long before the internet, by the 1920s, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, was being rejected from the very pulpit of a prominent New York City Presbyterian church by a minister who stood and boldly declared and was applauded for saying that he had never met an intelligent Christian who believed the virgin birth. only goes to demonstrate that men are still rejecting the promises of God and prefer instead to place themselves under His threat. But in the end, those are really the only two choices you have that anyone has. He has come, Emmanuel has come, and he has grown up among men. He has died, he has risen again, he is today seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven with an iron scepter in his hand. Men may receive the sign, like Isaiah and his son and the remnant of Isaiah's day did, or they may, like Ahaz, they may reject it like Ahaz and his contemporaries. But no one, absolutely no one, can remain indifferent to him. He is the greatest reality. We might say he is the reality of the entire history of mankind. Emmanuel stands right at the center of human history and he cannot, he will not be ignored. You must either receive him and the promises are yours and the sign is a bonus or reject him 
and place yourselves under his terrible judgments. Judgments that I tell you make the Assyrians and the Egyptians look like a bunch of pussycats in comparison. John Newton, the writer of our hymn Amazing Grace, put it this way. What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. As Jesus appears in your view, as He is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath are yours.